Thank you, Arlene. In 1991, the American Institute of Architects cited Frank Lloyd Wright as the greatest American architect of all time. He designed more than 1,000 projects that resulted in 500 completed works. Among them were offices, churches, schools, hotels, museums, and guess what? He did it while working with only three basic shapes. The what? The triangle, the circle, and the square. The most ever paid for a painting ever at an auction was da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi, translated means savior of the world. It's this one right here. In auction, it sold for $450 million. It was bought by uh, MBS, MBH, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. $450 million. The Mona Lisa is the most valuable painting on earth. In 1962, the Louvre assessed it and insured it for $100 million. Today, that shakes out to $850 million. I don't know, I look at it, I think, it, I think it's worth it, don't you? I've always loved the Mona Lisa. And guess what, he did it with what? With three basic colors. Red, yellow, I mean blue, yellow, and green. When you read through 1 Corinthians 12, Paul masterfully guides us through a challenge. A challenge of true love versus what God has called. A challenge of, of gifts that can be used in the church up to what the gifts should be always filtered through and what the greatest is. And then by the time we get to chapter 13, it's all about love. All gifts are wonderfully bestowed, but they're all going to be what? They're all going to be done away with. You know Why? Because gifts, spiritual gifts, were given to each of us to be able to spread the gospel. When we get to the kingdom, we don't need to spread the gospel anymore. And that whole thing about being known as I am fully known now, wow. But all the gifts will disappear. There's no need. So we're brought here and we're left here, right here. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? See, three primary colors, three primary shapes. And for a believer, this is our three primary fundamental steps of, of walk and faith and everything else. There is nothing more than this. Faith, hope, and what? And love. Faith, a personal faith we're all called to, a corporate faith the church is called to, a doctrinal faith, a, a faith in mission, a faith in theology. Hope, what is our hope? Hope in life, life eternal, uh, life restored, hope that one day all this will be left behind. Peace fulfilled, absolutely, positively fulfilled. But is what Paul's saying here really saying that faith and hope 
can be inadequate without love? Is it true? That's what we'll look at today. See, John chapter 12 is the transition between Jesus' public ministry and the hour of his suffering and death. This is making the transition. He will withdraw from the public after this event and bring himself into the company of nothing but the disciples. We'll get there. But this is the transition. This is his, one of his last public appearances is, what, is, is uh, what John is getting us to understand. He writes this, John, remember, he writes this gospel with a couple of deep emphases. So as you, as you have got to know Jesus of how he treated people in the, in the public square, if you will, in what he did, you, you come away with two deep emphases. The one most important thing, that when you get finished, we are to conclude one thing about Jesus, and that he is the Messiah, that he is God come down to save everyone who would believe, everyone who would have what? Have faith. One of the three, right? Faith. That singular seed from Sabbath school, Grady. That one seed. One day there'll be one man, one person, one human who's gonna come and set this all right. He's been prophesied for thousands of years and here he is. This is what John is having you take away. By, John, by chapter 12, he's given Israel a few signs so that they could open up their mind to possibly believing that he is who he says he is. He's turned water to wine. He's healed a few people. He's fed 5,000. He's walked on water. He's preached countless sermons. All the signs that were needed. But... But all the power, all the majesty is undergirded in this in an unshakable emphasis that Jesus would agree with Paul that everything that he's done would be nothing without what? Without love. And it's all summed up in love. Why is he here? Why is he doing this? Why is he the bread that has come down from heaven? All you have to do is look at the people that he's decided to bestow that power on, that healing power. The paralytic, 38 years paralyzed, but, but he heals him on what? He heals him on a particular day. What was it? You think that was by accident? No. A man born blind. And finally, he raises Lazarus from the dead. The principles for healing all of these people is simply one thing and one thing alone. For God so loved the world. If you were to ask Jesus at any given moment in that public ministry, Lord, why are you doing this? He would say, it's simple, Greg. It's simple, my son. I do it because I love them. Period. And in his preaching, we were introduced, if you will. See, a lot, of the, a lot of his public preaching was brought on by situations, situations where the Bible believers, where the self-righteous or the church of the day were trying to catch him, catch him to say something that they could condemn him for. So much of it's preaching. So in the preaching, we were introduced to a certain prostitute from the condemnation of biblical law. The law says and was clear what must be done with this adulterous prostitute and what was it? 
that she be stoned to death. But Jesus preaches, Jesus teaches, Jesus demonstrates one thing, and that is, I came here because I love her. I'll make this decision, not based on the condemnation of the letter of the law, but based on my love for her. Woman, where are your accusers? I don't know, sir. I don't accuse you either. So, how do we respond to the Messiah when we know this? How does anybody respond to the Messiah when we know this? How did Mary respond to the Messiah when she knew this? Will faith and hope be enough? Let's take a look. John chapter 12, verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly, pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, wiped them with their hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Oh, I'm sorry, given to the poor. He said this not because he cared, right, about the poor. He said this because he kept the purse and he used to steal what was put into it. Jesus says, leave her away. Leave her alone. If you think about it, isn't this the second time he has pronounced this over her? Leave her alone. Why? She belongs to me. It's one of my lambs here. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Because she's doing something that no one else will do. No one else will recognize. Not even Peter and the rest of the disciples are acknowledging what she's acknowledging right here. She's actually anointing him for his what? Not even his disciples believe this. At this point in time, the disciples in no way believe he's ever going to what? That he's going to die. Mary's been listening. In a way, she's the only disciple on the planet right now at this particular moment who understands who he is and what he's here to do. This prostitute, this Magdalene. The village of Magdala is one of those villages that creep up, pop up immediately anytime there is a fort that pops up, a military fort. Magdala is right next to Tiberias. Tiberias is one of the 11 garrisoned cities in all of Israel. Magdala was there for one reason and one reason alone, where a Roman soldier could go and find various degrees of pleasure. Can you picture it? There's no other reason for that town to be there. So to say you were from Magdala means you were either a bartender and owned a saloon or you were a prostitute. Magdalene is not a title that she carried around proudly. Magdalene is not her last name. Magdalene was her label. And every time she's referred to as Mary Magdalene, 
You might as well say out loud, and forgive me if it's not a Sabbath kosher word, you might as well say out loud, marry the whore. She's fragile. She's easily discouraged. Last chapter, we had the mourners of Lazarus, the self-righteous mourners of Lazarus, talk her into not believing in the Messiah anymore, even after what she has done for her. In Luke 8 and John 8, it said that Jesus had to cast how many spirits out from her? Seven. Now, it's been speculated uh, a long time as to what that means. Were there seven spirits? Because seven is a very important number in, in, in the Bible. It could actually mean that she was complete. Seven is a complete uh, number. It's perfect. Okay, seven days of creation, seven spirits, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. It's God's number. It's perfect. It could mean that she was completely possessed. Or they could actually be individual ones. And what the idea is to get across was that she kept failing. He'd cast one out, and no sooner did he do that, he would have to what? He would have to do it again. As I said, the last chapter, she may have fallen out of faith completely and didn't believe in him anymore. So notice where she is now. Is she hiding? Is she staying away from Jesus like she did in the previous chapter? She's back in the mix, isn't she? She's right where she always has been. Where? At Jesus' feet. Again, Jesus' mercy and his patience, allowing her to grieve last week, allowing her uh, 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 to maybe even allowing her to turn his back on her, on him at Lazarus' tomb, but, but allowing to do that, not calling her out, not upbraiding her for her lack of faith, which he could have done, by the way, couldn't he? All of that, the love that he has shown for her has won her back. Her heart's been won back and it's been won back in a big way, by the way. How many here have a picture that Mary was able to do this kind of on the sly? That maybe not everybody at the table noticed what was going on. If you think so, I need to disavow you of that, disabuse you of that notion today. Remember, they're not sitting at a 17th through 21st century table. They're sitting at a table that is no higher than one of these. And his feet actually are kind of at an angle away from him as he lays uh, and rests on here on the person next to him as the person next to him is doing the same. You think she got in, snuck in, and snuck back out? No, she walked right into the middle of this. She disrupted the entire thing. By the way, everybody's feet kind of slides. Uh, by the way, uh, it, it shows the importance of washing your feet, right? Because it's going to be right in the face of your neighbor. So they got together like a jigsaw puzzle. There was no way she could get his feet out of there and not have anybody else notice. And the other gospel accounts of what has happened, everybody knows what's going on, remember? The host says, what in the world? 
In fact, it leads the host to not believe that he is who he claims to be. He said, because if he really is the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman this is. She didn't sneak in and sneak out, and I don't know why. Actually, I do know why. We don't have time to get into it. But I don't know why we want to make it sound like she snuck in and snuck out. One of the reasons why is that we want to hide who she really is. That maybe, just maybe, we want you to think that she's a little better of a person. That maybe she deserves the love that Jesus is giving her. And she has no such notion in her head. She knows exactly who she is. And this new faith and this new hope all wrapped up in Jesus' love. She's putting it all to rest right now, every bit of it. She risked the ultimate public, of, public embarrassment. As a matter of fact, Simon comes this close to quote unquote telling everybody who she is, right? But I don't think it bothers her. I don't think that, that she's necessarily proud of the title she wears or the label she wears, but what she's proud of is what Jesus has done for her in that title. And here she is. Here she is. Her new faith, her faith and her love is reborn for Jesus because of what he did. See, what she expected, maybe what she expected is a lot of what we expect sometimes from God, is that I've decided, say, say it was me, say I decided that I would listen to these, these religious leaders and I no longer believe who he is. I buy their argument that the reason he didn't show up is because he wasn't powerful enough to do anything about Lazarus. Okay, I've made my decision. I don't believe in the guy anymore. I think he's a fraud. And we would expect him, I would expect him, being a selfish, fallen human being, would be that he would then go ahead and not raise Lazarus because I don't have any faith. By the way, there's some believers who believe that when they go to anoint somebody. They don't want any unbelievers around. You think that God's really gonna withhold his healing because somebody there who is praying is struggling with their faith? Not if you believe that Jesus loves, that the only reason he's here is because he loves. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, in spite of Mary's unbelief, that love that he showed her back when he, he saved her life from being stoned to death, that all came back again. And now she's back. Here she is. As a matter of fact, Jesus pronounces something over this when it happens. I tell you the truth that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Guess what? Today, just for today, you and I kept that prophecy alive. We're still talking about it. How does it feel to be a fulfillment of prophecy today? Yes. She's gone from unbelief to this. You always find her at the foot of Jesus. By the way, in last chapter, even when she didn't believe, she came out and she threw herself at where? At his feet. Even when she didn't believe, you find her at the foot of Jesus. 
In John chapter 8, she's dragged to Jesus' feet in humiliation, the, the, the event that we're talking about. Last chapter, she falls at his feet in unbelief and helplessness. In Luke 10, she sits at his feet in study and contemplation. In John 19, she will stand at his feet as he hangs on the cross, along with three other women, by the way, with not a disciple to be found. Actually, excuse me, I'm sorry. There were four disciples standing at his feet. They just happened to be women. And in John 20, she'll fall on his feet one more time in submission to the resurrected Christ. Here, she anoints those feet in the spirit of sacrifice. What has she sacrificed? She's filled with self-sacrificing love now. But out of the reactions to the Messiah that was signaled by the raising of Lazarus, this is the one that John holds up for us immediately. Out of all the ways that you can react to the Messiah, when you realize that Jesus is the Messiah, Mary is the one that John holds up for us as what we should do, as to how we should react. This is the great model that we are to follow. The prostitute. So note, she has shaky faith. It's iffy, right? Seven times she's had to be called back to it. Shaky hope. There was no hope last chapter. She didn't think anything could be done for her brother. But what changes her? What brings her to this point? His love for her. She's hopeless in her sin. She had nothing to offer, but received back the love of Jesus, realizing she needed it. Important, important. Realized that she needed it, and then is able then to give it back. Compare this to the religious leaders, the church of the day. A people of great faith and hope, by the way. Great faith and hope. Just ask them. Ask any of these religious leaders. Ask Caiaphas if he has great faith in hope. And he does. And hope when what's been written. But take a look as, as he continues talking. John continues talking about him. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that, that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see who? See, it's, it's gotten out now. Bethany is not that big a town. It's gotten out. So they're there to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priest planned then to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and believing in Jesus. Not only do they not want to believe, they want to keep everyone else from believing. So what's their plan? We gotta kill the one living witness that he is who he claims to be. Maybe every other sign they've been able to debunk, every other sign they've been able to at least plant some seed of doubt in, in mind. I don't think that little girl was really dead. And who can trust a, a, a widow in that little backward, backwater village of Nain? I think that they all made that up. Lazarus the one guy still walking around saying, oh, sorry guys, I'm kind of here. And I was dead. 
kill Lazarus as well? Here's how the religious leaders concluded what the raising of Lazarus meant. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council, says, what are we to do? This man is doing what? He's performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone but who? Them. Remember? And they are so arrogant and self-righteous enough, the church is so arrogant and self-righteous enough to actually say that that is enough authority to not believe in him. Remember, they've already said that. Here's proof that he's not who he claims to be. None of us believe in him. If we let him go on like this, the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Remember the Romans, you don't get the Romans' attention until you do what? Until you pledge your allegiance to someone else. And by the way, you could still do that as long as you paid your taxes, so I'll draw the line. Not really. As long as you're paying your taxes, the Romans don't care who you worship. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You don't understand that it's better for one man to die for the people than to have the entire nation destroyed. Kill Lazarus? Why? Because he is the most powerful witness to what they don't want to believe, that Jesus is the Messiah. It was on account of him, they say. It's on account of Lazarus, they say. So let's do what? These guys are no longer operating rationally. They're so committed to their faith and their hope, they're willing to commit murder to prevent the facts that they were denying from coming to light. Their faith and their hope cannot let Jesus go on like this. They're wrong. They know they're wrong. But what's their only priority now? Their only priority is this. Oh, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. Saving face is their only priority now. They feel their power slipping away. They feel their means of income. The entire economy is based on this is based on this corrupt priesthood and this corrupt method of the, of, of the temple. And they've wrapped it all in this, this nationalistic worship of God that is, that is creating marginalized people. By the way, the marginalized people are the ones that are beginning to believe. They feel it slipping away. Look what it leads to. Lazarus has committed no blasphemy. He's broken no Jewish law. He's just a living witness to the power that Jesus had. He's the one living backup to Jesus' claims of divinity. He shows us what's to come. What Jesus predicts will happen. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is doing what? Will think that he's worshiping God. True followers of Jesus will always suffer. At the hands of who? At the hands of the world? No. 
at the hands of those who claim to be his church. And all because you can have faith and you can have hope without what? Without love. Did I prove my point? I said, we'll start. Is faith and hope, according to Paul, really inadequate without love? Well, not only is it inadequate, it's actually dangerous. It was a people of faith and hope that killed the Messiah. But they lacked what? They lacked love. And I'm not saying that they lacked loving him. You know what they lack? They lack that God loves them. Oh, actually, they believe God loves them, but they believe that God loves them because they're good. They believe that God loves them because they are righteous, and we are the only ones. What they don't believe is that God loves any of the people that so far Jesus has loved. And therein lies their problem. It's not that they don't love God, it's that they don't believe that he loves them. And if they do believe that God loves them, they believe that he loves them only if they're walking the straight and narrow and they have not fallen. There's no way he should love a prostitute. There's no way he should love a Samaritan. There's no way he should love a man born blind because God made him born blind, so that meant that God didn't like him. So that's what they don't get. That's why Jesus' one words to Nicodemus, one of those self-righteous people, was for God so loved the world that he'll give his only son. That whoever would believe in him would have not death, but what? But eternal life. What they don't get is that. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will what? I'll draw all people unto myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was to die. There's nothing cryptic about this. There's nothing that you have to figure out about this. They know what he means by being lifted up. What people don't get, what we don't get, or at least what the self-righteous don't get, the Bible believers don't get, is the way of the cross. We have no other way to approach the cross except abject, absolute humility. It needs to empty us completely of any righteousness we think that we have developed on our own. In the Beatitudes, the first thing Jesus says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have no spirit whatsoever, who have nothing spiritual. Because when you come to me, Jesus says, and you hold out an empty hand, you will be filled. The problem with us is that our hands are still filled with stuff that we think is righteous. And Jesus can't do anything with that. He can't do anything with me. If I believe that he loves me more than a prostitute because of who we are, then he can't fill me. The cross proves that. 
There's nothing I can add to the cross. There's nothing I can do about the cross. There's nothing we could do. Remember a pastor named David Vanderberg at our own camp meeting came up with this phrase. He says, the only thing you can do when you're introduced to the Messiah on the cross is hang your helpless soul with him. See, the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. What are they arguing with now? If you're a Messiah, you can't what? You can't die. We've heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? See, they understood what he meant. There was nothing cryptic about it. How can you say that the Son of Man would be lifted up? Hear them? Our study of the law, our Bible study, which cannot be refuted because we have present truth, because we are remnant, because we know what we're talking about, the Messiah cannot die. He will what? He'll last forever. And by the way, the Bible does say that. Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But it also says this, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The reason they love that other prophecy about the Messiah about never dying is because it says nothing about the people he came to die for. I could make the letter of the law my righteousness if I want to. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us what? Of us all. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Selective reading. Even, it's to, even if it's to protect a sincere, lofty doctrine. The cross blows all of that away, or it should. Needing a death to die on their behalf? No. We'll crown him king our way, our interpretation, our anointing. Kill Jesus, kill Lazarus, kill the followers of Jesus. Faith and hope without love is simply dangerous. By the way, faith and hope without love being operated in the world, all you have to do is look at beast number one and beast number two because that's exactly what they're doing. The reason why the beasts are a false church is that they claim to be of great faith and hope, which by the way they are because they're the church, but they're doing it without what? They're doing it without love. Love's the only thing that cures this. Love is the only thing that breaks this cycle. What Jesus saves us from is our inability to love. We would much rather be known as a people of faith and hope. We can put the love on hold because it doesn't call me to anything. What Jesus saves us of is our inability to love, our inability to believe that we are loved. 
I think I pointed it out before that Ephesus is the first church in history, the first Christian church in the history of the Christian era. And Jesus has only one problem with them. You've lost your first what? Lost your first love. And we've always interpreted that, that it was the love that we felt at first. It was the love that we fell in love with. No, that's not the first love. Not that we loved God, but that what? That he loved us. And when a church forgets that God loves the world, Grady, the Israelites, and the mixed multitude. Did you guys, were you in Sabbath school? Sorry, you missed a great lesson. Maybe next time you'll attend. Sorry. But when a church forgets that, and I begin to believe that because I'm an elder, because I'm a preacher, because I'm a Bible student, that God loves me more than he loves the prostitute, more than he loves the whore, then the church just begins to deteriorate. Until, by the way, until actually it gets to the point to where Jesus and his love are locked outside the door. And the church is inside claiming to be rich and have need of what? Nothing. That's why these three remain. Faith, hope, and what? And love. But the greatest of these is love. I think I've shared this a little bit before, but Michael Iaconelli in his book, The Messy Spirituality, speaks of one of these people that Jesus showed love upon that no one else is showing love upon, the man born blind. And the reason that no one else is showing love is is because, again, obviously, if he was born blind, then God had a problem with him. Either God had a problem with him or had a problem with his parents. And like I said, the self-righteous attitude is, if I can prove from my Bible that God doesn't like you, then I don't have to either. If God doesn't like you, why should I? So in a chapter called The Kingdom Monitors and Condemners, speaking of this, what ha- uh, speaking of this event and the man born blind, Iaconelli points out to us, according to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places. He said the wrong things. And worst of all, he let just anyone into the kingdom. Jesus scandalized an intimidating elitist country club religion by opening membership in the spiritual life to those who had been denied it. What made people furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoevers, the just anyones, and the not a chancers like you and me. Nothing makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumble into a party we weren't invited to and find the uninvited standing at the door making sure no other uninviteds get in. Then a strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we're included in the party because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible by becoming self-appointed kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out, which, as I understand it, is who the kingdom of God was made for. John tells the story of a man like us, an outsider, a blind outsider. The blind man bumped into Jesus, found his blindness ruined by him. He became a scandal to the religious leaders of the day. His miraculous encounter with Jesus is a model for all of us who are trying to live spiritual lives. 
In John chapter nine, we meet this man who was, born, who was blind from birth, sitting in his familiar place, begging. The disciples bring up some theological question about whether his blindness was caused by his own sin or by his parents' sin. They're not concerned about the blind man. They are concerned about the theology of blindness. By the way, not the physiology of blindness, not the medical cause of blindness, but the theology of blindness. The disciples attempt to have a theological discussion. Jesus cuts it short. He makes it very clear that what matters is glorifying God, helping blind men and women see. The disciples are worried about theories and doctrines. Jesus is worried about the blind man. In effect, Jesus says, your philosophizing about the cause of blindness is interesting. But wait till you see this. Talking about God's power is one thing. But look what happens when you're in the presence of his power. A little mud, a little water, and the blind man is no longer blind. Now the blind man's troubles really begin. Sometimes when blind people get unblind, their closest friends aren't happy. Meeting Jesus does not always result in our troubles ending. Sometimes our troubles just begin. Jesus warns us, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. Begin a relationship with Jesus, and we're going to get in the same trouble Jesus did. When the man who was formerly blind returns to his neighborhood, his neighbors refuse to believe he can see. Afraid of mystery, unable to fathom the possibility of a miracle, the neighbors turn their backs on their friend, drag him to those who should have known something about mystery and miracle and spirituality, the religious leaders, but they turn out to be the condemners. The sabotage of the blind man begins. How should you and I respond to such intimidation? How can we survive when uh, our spit stuck in my eyes and ordered me to wash it off? How do we survive when that's all we were told and that's all we know? I did what he said. Now I can what? Now I can see. The blind man flunks religion 101. The kingdom monitors, who know more about God than an uneducated, uncouth blind man, or so they believe, a heated lecture ensues. Any Sunday or Sabbath school student knows, they be- knows that people who are born blind from birth are paying for the sins of them or their family or both. The real God doesn't use mud to heal people, especially from self-appointed prophets no one has heard of and no one is listening to. And most certainly, God does not heal on the Sabbath. Religious people love to hide behind religion. They love the rules of religion more than they love Jesus. With practice, condemners let rules become more important than the spiritual life. See the law, the word on the page, the Bible on paper is what's standing in the way of this church, these religious leaders having a real relationship with God. Imagine that. We discovered that. And I remember the night and the day that we discovered it in in prayer meeting. 
They're separating themselves from the Messiah, from God, the, the, the God that they claim to believe in, and they're holding their Bible up in front of him saying, this says you can't be who you claim to be. And Jesus' only argument is, I love what you're holding, Grady. I love what you're holding there, Greg. But I'm the word become flesh. Let me take it off the page. Let me walk with you and talk with you. When you remove the law from the page and let it live and breathe in the heart, you'll see a fulfillment of the commandment and of doctrine like you have never seen. I can promise you that. We can kill those whom he loves. We can allow our faith and hope without love, allow a bloodless command or piece of doctrine from his love pervading our hearts and prevent someone else to get it. That's why Paul had to say this. He's encountered a church that is is accomplishing great spiritual things. Everybody's got spiritual gifts. And the worship every, every day is showing it. But they're fighting with each other about it. They're going in without order. They're beginning to think that one gift is greater than the other. They're beginning to think that maybe I'm greater in the kingdom than you are. So Jesus has to say, of these three that remain, faith, hope, spiritual giftedness, mission, doctrine, all great and love. But the greatest of these is love. We can prevent the word uh, uh, on the page from uh, uh, prevent it, keep us from loving people, or we can let him go on. The one thing that they won't let him do. We can let him go on. And he can anoint us with his love and his spirit as we anoint him. See, she was willing to risk everything, this prostitute, this adulteress. She's willing to show what mercy and love is capable of, what faith and hope can do. Shaky faith, shaky hope can do with the love of the Messiah. You know, She's the first voice to preach the risen Savior. The other disciples don't believe he's risen. She is the very first disciple to proclaim and preach. You know, within a hundred years, within a hundred years in the church, after Jesus went back to heaven, and a hundred years probably since Mary's death, the church began to tell women, you can't preach, you can't proclaim. Why? couple of lines on the page. By the way, the majority of the mainstream church still believes that because of a couple of lines on the page. We won't allow the love of God, the love that showed the very first proclaimer of the resurrected Christ as a woman, we won't allow anyone else to do it. No matter how much she proclaims that she's anointed to do so. So remember when I said that if we allow the word to come off the page 
and pervade our hearts, things will begin to happen. We'll begin to see love fulfilling the page, fulfilling the doctrine right in front of our eyes. I have a warning for you that when it begins to happen, it's going to look like heresy. And it's even gonna feel like heresy. But be patient as the Holy Spirit allows us to be or actually gives us the power to be. Be patient, be humble, and we'll begin to see the biblical standards of faith and hope is nothing without what? Without love. It's what Mary reminds us of today. Even Arlene had to change the words of those very words. When I became a man, Paul says, and we made a woman say, when I became a man. Why? Did Paul mean that Arlene never became mature enough to put away childish things? That you as a woman never put it away? Yet it still says that on the page. We're not even willing to change the word based on whoever is reading it, even in our own church. Are you guys seeing the hardness of the heart in faith and hope, but without what? What it's possible of doing? So, I praise God today that the very first preacher of the resurrected Christ was a woman. And I praise God of what she reminds me of today and what we are reminded of and maybe what we need to do to make changes as we go on. Thank you all for coming with me today. Mm